Hello, thanks for tuning into Intangible Assets, a podcast by the Intellectual Property Law Section of the California Lawyers Association. I'm your host, David Lizerbram. The California Lawyers Association is the bar association for all California attorneys. Our mission is to promote excellence, diversity, and inclusion in the legal profession and fairness in the administration of justice and the rule of law. In this episode, I'll be talking to Daniel Schacht of Donahue Fitzgerald LLP. Daniel heads the firm's music and entertainment practice and co-chairs the intellectual property practice group. He also regularly teaches music law at his alma mater, UC Berkeley School of Law, and provides California lawyers for the arts with pro bono services and seminars on the law and business of music. Daniel and I talk about his background as a professional musician, his transition to the law, and what to look out for when your client is entering into an agreement with a licensing agent. And now here is my conversation with Daniel Schacht. Okay, Daniel Schacht, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. Yeah, thanks. So let's see, we're here to talk about licensing, but we're also here to talk about you. So I'd like to know a little bit about where you come from and how you found yourself uh, going to law school and getting involved in this profession. Uh, well, it's definitely been a circuitous path to try and give you the, the short form. I uh, grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And after college, didn't really know what to, what I wanted to do, and eventually found myself. And where did really, you go to school? I went to Cornell. Okay. But uh, I spent a semester there traveling around the country. I spent a year abroad uh, in Hamburg. So it was kind of a, I, it, you know, I came in really wanting to be a physicist, and about well, fairly quickly, I realized that's not what I wanted to do, but. I think my early 20s were a period of trying to figure out what I did want to do career-wise. And I just found myself drawn more and more to music, to performing music. And so made a go of about 10 years of, you know, trying to make a living as a professional musician. And uh, which I enjoyed and, and, you know, it didn't bring me any great success, but it taught me a lot of life lessons and really pushed me in ways that, that were helpful and that still are with me today. So let's, I, I just want to know a little bit more about that. What, what type of music were you playing? Well, you know, what, what level were we going to? You know, I was, you know, I grew up on the Pete Seeger songbook. So I kind of gravitated towards playing a lot of singer songwriters, but I also did some jazz and, and I had a great time playing in the pit band for the Lorraine Hansberry theater. We did a lot of musicals there, but mostly working kind of with, you know, folk rock bands. And I played bass. I grew up playing violin and, you know, I can handle one note at a time. Don't give me a, <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't throw a chord at me, but uh, I'm good enough where I can play one note after another. Uh, you know, it's fun. And I toured a little bit. I never reached any level of a success where, where, for example, I could afford uh, my, my, <laughs> my rate now. Or to <laughs> sure. Any, Assigned to a small label and also was a time, you know, played, played a couple nice venues and had a really great time and it was just very satisfying time. But I was always, I was interested in a lot of different things. And one of the things, you know, being kind of a broke musician and being a bass player, I thought, oh, I need to kind of protect myself. And maybe it's that innate skepticism that we have as lawyers. But I thought, well, 
you know, if you're in a band and everyone's telling you, oh, yeah, we're all in this together while we're making peanuts, you always hear the stories of, well, as soon as we get signed, the, the bass player and maybe the drummer, they're the first to go. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought about how do I, you know, this is my career and I'm trying to do it as a, as a, a kind of a business. So I need to make sure I'm protected here. And I read the NOLO books about, I think it was called How to Run Your Band as a Business. Yep. Had a lot of confidence in it. And Don Passman's great book. I mean, that's a classic. Loved that. And so I really got interested in that and thought that, hey, you know, I'm doing a lot of different things. I had a studio. I was producing, playing, teaching. No, I'll just add lawyer to the mix because I find it really interesting. (laughs) Why not? Uh, Yeah. You know, it's a great profession that, you know, piques your intellectual curiosity. and, And it's it's great. We we learn every day new new things, and it's one of the things I love about the profession. So I went to law school as a pretty late, you know, in my early 30s. I went to Berkeley here, uh, loved it, and while I was there, you know, I I also took a small. It was a well, the name was small. Basically, it was lawyering for small businesses, and it really opened my eyes to how. A lot of entrepreneurs have a similar creative bent to them, and that really appealed to me. And so I found a local firm, Donahue Gallagher at the time, did a summer there, really liked it. And they had a small entertainment practice. I thought, this is great. So, But in terms of the music, I was actually signed to a small label, a band I was in, um, but it was the time of um, you know Napster. So we had decent radio play and support and i think we sold all of like 1500 cds in (laughs) the first year so it was not a good time to try and make a living as a musician Um, not that it ever really is but it was particularly hard and so when i was in law school i just really i really enjoyed the ip focus at berkeley you know i had a great summer working for pam samuelson researching section 102b of the copyright act and had a great class with Peter Minnell that has an overview, an interesting overview of the entertainment world and particularly focused on music. And um, yeah, and then I started at a mid-sized firm that I really enjoyed and that had a, had a great kind of niche practice at the time, mostly representing some really great legacy artists. And so I had an opportunity both to work on that under a great mentor but also to do a lot of the different things, right? To do basic corporate work, to do some employment litigation. And it really was a place where you were dropped into a lot of different things. So that's, you know, that uh, that got me to the firm. And then I've stayed there ever since, really enjoyed it. We've gotten a little bit bigger. And I took over the music practice maybe five years ago or so. And have really been trying to build that and expand it. Um, but still, you know, continue to, spend a little time here and there on other matters. Sometimes it, it overlaps. We have a lot of technology clients. So sometimes it's a music app or something like that. We're on, working on interesting licensing things for them. But really my focus has shifted back to being about 90% music now. So before we get into licensing, I have to talk, I have to hear the kind of thumbnail story of how you got involved in uh, Happy Birthday. A song most of us probably have heard. 
<laughs> yes, yes. There is a podcast that I listen to, and for the life of me, I cannot find it anymore. But it talked about uh, Robert Brownice's. He had a he had written an article about the the copyright status of Happy Birthday, and he had come to two conclusions. One is that the song is almost certainly in the public domain, and two, you can't do anything about it <laughs> because. Right. If you said if you file suit, they will instantly give you a, a gratis license and you lose standing and you're done. And he didn't think it could be done as a class action. And, and I just it, it, it gnawed at me because I just felt like it, that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's wrong that for a song like that to be in the public domain, but to not be able to do anything about it. And it didn't I, I just felt like there has to be a way to do this. And interestingly, I had worked up the case and I had a client who was you know local musician who had performed it and you know would have needed a mechanical license if based on warner chapel's claims and so i was getting ready for that and then somebody else filed and you know i thought oh what's going on but i reached out to mark who's a great end up being a great attorney to work with and they're, they're a big class action firm out of new york and mark rifkin and really ended up it ended up being a really nice relationship professionally because I was able to focus on the copyright and the music pieces of it that I really enjoyed. And Mark and his firm and a couple people there, uh, Randy Newman was also involved, who did a lot of the heavy lifting on the class action pieces, which, you know, that's something I do on occasion, but it's less enjoyable to me than the copyright and the music. Um, and that was just a really great, great case to be involved in. And, I, you know, I, I wondered at the time of that when it was over, you know, is this going to end up on my tombstone? What am I going to do next? But, <laughs> you know, it's part of being having a my approach to life. I was like, you know, what's next and where are we headed? And it's been an enjoyable, circuitous path. So but it was definitely a fun case to be involved in. Are there any other uh, kind of classic songs that you're planning to rescue into the public domain? Or was that pretty much the one? You know, that was the one. And things have come up. But, you know, my my heart and my practices with representing musicians, this was kind of a unique opportunity. And also some of the economics don't work on other songs, frankly. Yeah. You know, you just are not going to go after something that you're not going to do a huge class action and run up millions of dollars in, in fees to go after something that earns $10,000 a year. Right. But, you know, I'm happy to see it when it does happen because I do think the public domain is important. It was interesting going to Berkeley Law because it has such a a bent towards kind of the EFF view of things, really, that, you know, information should be free. And being a, a, a mature student at the time and having had a this background with of being an artist, you know, I was very comfortable arguing my point on that, which is, you know, that's all great, but artists need to get paid. You know, we, we all fit as a society when, when artists get paid. So, and it is interesting because that, that's, you know, I, I teach on occasion at, at Berkeley now and, and I co-teach with Peter Minnell, who I think has a similar mindset and a similar approach of wanting a balance between, kind of the copy left and the, and the more maybe overreaching that you sometimes see in copyright law. But it's fun to go back and to 
you know, kind of be a voice and, and give a, a for the artists and give that perspective to students. All right. Well, we wanted to talk a little bit about licensing and, and you had mentioned to me some of the issues around licensing agents and kind of that as an angle to approach the topic. So I want to hear a little bit about your experience with licensing agents and, and what they're you know doing kind of in the digital internet Spotify age and, and some of the issues that, uh, you know, attorneys might encounter related to that. Yeah, I don't know if I can provide a lot of insight into this other than to flag it as just an issue that comes, a difficult issue, I think, that arises, which is, you know, particularly in the in the music business, and sometimes it's more prevalent with the smaller artists, there's still the age-old issue of people coming and wanting to, you know, they offer promotional services or they offer some kind of licensing help. Maybe it's an agent. Maybe it's uh, somebody who says they'll distribute your album. Um, and they always want a nice percentage of of all the income. And I think it's become increasingly easy for people to exploit that because, you know, it, even in, in non-music related areas, like it's, you know, it used to be impossible, not impossible, but it would be hard to fake being a merchandise company. Or not to be, you know, you'd have to have somehow have your manufacturing set up and, and there are things you could test. I mean, for example, contract wise, we used to insist on for many artists, uh, inspection rights to factories, but that's very hard now. A lot of things are quite legitimately on demand, quite legitimately the, the, that there's much less inventory. The manufacturing process is much more streamlined. So how do you. You know, how do you vet something, particularly as a lawyer, when you know, I think for most of us, we're kind of cocooned in our office, so to speak. We're not, uh, you know, we're asked to jump in on in industries that we may have some awareness of, but we're not, you know, we're not out there in the furniture business or something unless it's unless you're really specialized. Um, so it's, it's a different process of evaluating those those offers that come around. You know, somebody says, hey, I'll. I've seen it. The obviously, the obvious ones you want to flag as a as a red flag are, hey, I'll distribute your album, for example, and I'll take thirty percent. And say, well, you can do that nowadays for twenty dollars <laughs> on sites. But between that and somebody who's legitimately earning their money by saying, let's say, you know, saying, all right, I'll take thirty percent of your income, but I'm going to bring you a lot of offers and I'm going to bring things to the table that make it more than. Uh, worth your while there's a huge space in the middle and it's often hard to evaluate those kinds of contracts when they come in so what are some of the kind of tips or or red flags or things you look out for you know when a client comes to you and and has been presented with this kind of offer what do you look at to say okay this seems legitimate and it's in the client's interest versus something that uh you know might be less than what it seems i think you know, to some, there's, there's some old-fashioned approaches, of course, that still work. The closer it is to the music business, the easier it is for me to reach out to people. Know the people you work with, too. I mean, I rely on a lot of artist managers for their insight. And so sometimes we'll just discuss it and see if, we, hey, can we find out who else has worked with them. Sometimes just having frank conversations. I had concerns about a, a print-on-demand company. And ended up just in a longer conversation with them and was very honest about 
you know, some of my concerns. And uh, there was still kind of the old fashioned evaluation over the phone and figuring out, does this person seem trustworthy? And it, and it worked out well in that case. And I think it was kind of just being transparent about my ignorance, which is always good. And just asking the questions about what, what is this piece? Why did you have, why are you asking for this? And then some of the concrete issues, you know, milestones. I always think if you're going to have these kinds of licensing, you know, you have these great promises. Oh yeah, we'll bring in $200,000 in revenue in the first year. Okay, great. Well, let, let me have a termination, right? If you don't do it, you know, what are the kind of ways that you can get out of the deal that, that makes sense. And it's sometimes also working with clients because uh, a lot of, you know, sometimes they get hesitant. They want eight different people working the same, whatever it is, the same, same area, be it sometimes I have clients who really want sync deals and they want eight different agencies working. It's like, well, that doesn't really help. You should find one that works <laughs> and, and stick with them. So sometimes it, Realizing that exclusivity is, is something you actually want to deal. It's not necessarily something you want to avoid all the time. So those are some of the issues. I think there's, it's, it's also, I think, again, it's what makes our life so interesting is there's always new things and the technology and the internet bring a, a, a lot of new ways to do business and a lot of ways to do business badly. Yeah. So I'm really curious, and this is a little bit more timely or topical, but we know that uh, physical record CD sales are not, uh, you know, where they were maybe 20 years ago or, or so. Mm-hmm. And so artists, uh, you know, rely on other means to bring in revenue. Mm-hmm. Touring is obviously a, a big part of it. But as we speak, there's not very much of that happening, unfortunately. And hopefully that'll turn around soon. But all the big summer tours that your clients were probably counting on, you know, failed to materialize. So, you know, I guess that uh, leaves licensing maybe to fill in some of those gaps. Have you noticed any of that? Have you seen more activity in terms of products or other creative ways that artists are finding to leverage their their position and, uh, you know, fi- find ways to, to fill in that gap? Yes, definitely. And I was, you know, when this crisis started, I thought I had no idea what was going to happen in my practice. And certainly the lack of touring has severely impacted many of my clients' income. And, you know, I'm sensitive to that. And, and you know, we're in this together. I, I don't want to be running up fees while they're struggling. But my workload has actually increased because there's a lot of interest in other activity. And, you know, it's not something you can just turn on a dime, I think, and start. I think a lot of licensing is building up the infrastructure and kind of the maybe the attitude to do it to have your management out there looking and doing deals and having some presence in that space um, but yeah there's been a real attempt to to come up with some ways and sometimes you know it's it's not necessarily deals that are making a lot of money because of because everyone's in this crisis together but there may be opportunities for cementing a relationship for getting things started for doing smaller deals you know and and then there's the interesting part of uh, dealing with a lot of the new social platforms which you know doesn't does involve some licensing licensing the music to a certain degree or you're giving certain permissions to name and likeness rights Um, so it's been interesting and yeah as i said the workload's actually been increasing 
Well, I have a personal plea along those lines, which is uh, not not so topical, but in terms of uh, music artists and licensing, I have a three-year-old. And I would love to buy him T-shirts for good quality T-shirts and, and things like yeah. that for artists that I love. And, mm-hmm. you know, if I wanted to buy him a Rolling Stones or Guns N' Roses shirt, there's plenty of those, you know, out there. And those are great bands, you know, whatever. But if you're looking for something a little bit, you know, even slightly less mainstream than that, uh, there's not a lot of good children's apparel for uh, uh-huh. even even pretty well-known uh, bands. You know, if if it's out there, I've, sometimes I've seen it at shows, but uh, which aren't happening right now. But uh, <laughs> online, it's quite hard to find. So uh, I'm just going to put a personal plea out there. I, th- I thought for a while, maybe I should start this as a business, but I've got enough to do. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> just putting the word out, uh, you know, kids what? of toddlers uh, are also into interesting music and uh, and, and want want to spend their money yeah. on uh, letting their kids advertise uh, your, your art, your clients. So, um, you know, if you think of that, let me know. Well, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned because that little band I was in, you know, before and during law school, we printed up some onesies and it coincided with the birth of my my eldest. Uh, and um, so she had a, one of the band onesies, but they were actually quite popular. So <laughs> there you I've go. always thought that was a good idea. <laughs> and uh, I can't imagine it's easy with a three year old and working from home. <laughs> it's, it's all right. It's all right. It could be worse. So great. Well, this is really great, Daniel. Is there anything, you know, that we didn't cover that uh, you wanted to discuss and share with our vast audience here? Not, no, I'm, nothing comes to mind. I'm, you know, happy if you think of anything else, feel free to ping me again. But no, it's been a pleasure talking with you about it. Great. And if people want to follow up with you, if they have, you know, a, a referral or something that uh, they think, uh, you know, you might be interested in or may be able to help with, um, what's the best way to get in touch with you? You can just probably Google me. If, if you know how to spell my last name, you'll find me. <laughs> um, I'm in the that. same boat. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you can find me on, on our firm website at donahue.com. Got it. Perfect. All right, Daniel. Well, thanks well, a lot. One thing, Dave. Oh, yeah. I just want to make sure, you know, you and I talked. I, don't, I think it was before you were recording. You mentioned the other CLA. California Lawyers for the Arts, but I just think it's a great organization. I'm still actively involved in it, so I wanted to give a plug to them as well. Yeah, I'll co-sign on that. That is a great organization I've been involved with in in some capacity for 20 years, and and shout out to both of the CLAs, and uh, they're both doing great work. (laughs) And thanks for being our guest, Daniel. Thank you, David. Well, thank you for listening to Intangible Assets, a podcast by the Intellectual Property Law Section of the California Lawyers Association. And we have some interesting stuff coming up that you might want to check out. The annual IP Institute for 2020 has pivoted to become a virtual annual meeting, and it will be held on September 24th through 26th, 2020. Our flagship program will return live and in person to the California coast, on October 28th to 30th, 2021, at the Laguna Cliffs Resort and Spa. In the meantime, we have several MCLE webinars coming up soon, including one on regaining focus and avoiding lawyer burnout, which is definitely something we all need to know about, so please check that out. And for information about the annual meeting, the webinars, and other events, you can go to our website, calawyers.org slash IP events. And if you're interested in joining the intellectual property law section of the California Lawyers Association, please visit calawyers.org slash join IP. And finally, if you want to send us an email about the show, you can send it to podcast at calawyers.org. We look forward to hearing from you and I'm looking forward to speaking with you the next time on Intangible Assets. Mm-hmm.
Thank you.